Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, we've been going through the book of Revelation for the past few weeks. We're up into chapter 15 and 16 today. Um, It's incredibly difficult for me to catch you up if this is your first Sunday here, but we record every message and we put them online for free. You can watch them, we're recording through video, and you can also listen uh, through our podcast, your favorite podcast app. Just search for Red Hills Church. Um, It's the one with the red logo, not the other. Red Hills Church out in Oregon. We're the one in Tallahassee. Uh, And then you can follow along and catch up on the previous Red Hills uh, messages for the book of Revelation. Um, but in order to get into 1516, I do have to set the stage a little bit for what happened last week in Revelation 14. Because Revelation 14 gave us a parable of sorts on what the day of the Lord is going to look like. When the last trumpet sounds and the sky cracks open, what's going to happen? John sees a vision of that day, and he says it looks most like a harvest. Now that event of the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, it is one event, but there are two things that John sees during that event. And he describes them as two harvests. The first harvest that we saw last week at the end of Revelation 14 is the harvest of the Lord. Jesus appears as the one on the cloud. He's got the sickle. He's coming and he's bringing in the wheat harvest. He's harvesting the earth. He's bringing believers to himself. And then we see another uh, harvest. And this harvest is where the angels go out into the earth and they harvest the grapes. And they harvest the grapes for the purpose of putting into the wine press of God's wrath. And we're told that when it's crushed, the blood that poured out from the grapes is so deep, it rises so high that it it goes all the way up to a horse's bridle. So last week was an encouraging message. It (laughs) It was heavy, it was very bloody. But last week, we ended with that second harvest, the great harvest, the harvest of God's wrath. God pouring out his wrath on mankind that has rejected his son's authority and leadership. That's where we ended. And that was given to us kind of like in a picture or a parable. Well, this week in Revelation 15, that second harvest is given more clarity. John is given another vision of the same events. It's that second harvest of the grapes but it's detailed so that when we walk away, it's, it's not just a great harvest. What's actually happening in that harvest is there are seven angels with seven bowls, and the bowls are filled with God's wrath, and the angels are pouring them out. These bowls are pouring them out onto the earth. And these bowls of wrath are being poured out onto the earth. They're poured out onto the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom of the dragon, the followers of those who are marked with the mark of the beast. So, that's where we're going today. The final harvest 
and the seven bowls of wrath. Now before we get in, um, as with all things in Revelation, there are multiple interpretations about the seven bowls of wrath. And we've talked numerous times about different interpretations. There's room for you to hold different interpretations. So I'll kind of give you the broad sense of what most people kind of hold to, the different interpretations, and then I'll let you know where I hold so that we can get into the book. But the, probably the one that you may be familiar with and that you may actually hold or that you've been um, taught and heard is that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls um, are all sequential events. They happen in order during a specific seven-year period of time that would be referred to as the Great Tribulation. They kick off with the seals, then there's the trumpets, then there's the bowls. And during that period of time, the church is not here, they've been raptured out. Another popular view uh, um, held by many intelligent Bible scholars is that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are not three separate events. They're all the same events and they're just retold. It's almost like the seals are God pouring things out on the earth from the church's perspective and then the bowls are things being poured out on the earth from the earth's perspective and then the um, uh, I did that backwards. Then the trumpets are from the earth's perspective and then the bulls are from um, non-believers' perspectives. Um, and they're not specifically during a, uh, a locked-in seven-year period of time. It's actually things that happen during the entire church period. So it's not locked into a, a, um, like a, a calendar kind of thing. It's just things that are always true during this period until Jesus returns. Um, those are two very uh, popular views. Uh, another view is the view that, um, that I hold. It's the view that we've been kind of walking through this book with, and that is that the seals are um, things that are true in the church age that are progressively uh, increasing uh, until Jesus' return. The trumpets are things that take place during this period of great tribulation, and it may be a literal seven years, or it may be a symbolic period of time where God is, uh, in his perfect timing, is pouring out his, uh, um, declaring things over the earth and the trumpets. And then the bowls of wrath are things that are poured out on the earth as Jesus returns. And that's kind of how I view what we're about to read here. And I'll, I'll show you why I think that when we get into Revelation 15. Um, but this perspective sees the seals as things that are kind of happening now, being released on the earth now. And then there's this period of great tribulation where God is gonna declare things on the earth and this is the last chance for mankind to repent and turn to the son, as these, the son of God. And as the tr these trumpets are blown, uh, things are released on the earth. And then when the last trumpet blows, that's it. The sky cracks open, we're, said that, we're told that the temple in heaven is viewed. The son starts to return. He gathers his church, there's this rapture, the, dead in Christ will rise first and the church will gather with him in the clouds and we will follow him to this final battle. And on the way to that battle, these angels are pouring out these bowls of wrath on mankind. Mankind being those who have rejected the lamb and have taken the mark of the dragon. So, let's begin in Revelation chapter 15 and I'll walk you through that. Just one little disclaimer, you don't have to hold the view that I hold, okay? You, you can leave here and you're like, that dude is crazy, okay? That's fine. You're not the only person on planet Earth who thinks that. Um, but what I want to do is I want to show you through Scripture how things 
um, in Revelation uh, and things that Jesus spoke of and things that Paul spoke of seem to outline specific events that would take place that all line up that would lead me to believe that these are events um, that take place at the same time and the events being these seven bowls. So let's get into Revelation chapter 15. We're gonna start in verse one. <clears throat> so right on the heels of John seeing this vision of the wine harvest, or excuse me, the grape harvest, verse 15, one, he says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast with its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds. God, the almighty, just, and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. All right, so let's pause there. <clears throat> so following the harvest vision, John sees two important things in this new vision. The first thing he sees are seven angels with seven plagues ready to release God's wrath on the earth and the second thing he sees is all of God's family in God's presence worshiping Jesus. Now we know this is all God's family because of the song that they're singing. They're singing the song of, the, of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This is symbolic prophetic language of saying we've got Old Testament believers and we got New Testament believers. They're all together, they're all in God's family. There isn't some class system where there's some over here and some over here. They're all together, everybody's got a harp. They're standing before this uh, crystal sea, which we saw at the very beginning of the book, which is symbolic of God's presence. But now this symbolic sea is now filled with fire, which is symbolic of judgment. God's people are with God, and judgment is about to pour out on the earth. So John sees two things. He sees God's people with God worshiping the Lord, and he sees the eve of one of the greatest, eve, well, the eaves of one of the greatest seasons of destruction the earth has ever known about to be poured out on it. Now the contrast of this is, is stark, but the thing that stands out to me about this is what this vision is meant to do for the people of God. Because the song that they're singing, great and amazing, just and true, you alone are holy, your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a vision of God's people with God and a coming judgment. This vision is designed to bring 
comfort and reaffirm God's justice over his creation. Which is important because it reminds us that there is a justice in the cosmos that supersedes your sense of justice. That supersedes America's sense of justice. The legal system's sense of justice, any laws that mankind has ever created, there is a sense of justice in the heart of God that is greater than any sense of right or wrong or um, restitution that you could come up with in your sinful mind. And so what he's saying here to the early church, I want you to picture at the end of time all of you who are suffering now, right? In, in the first century, you've got Rome who has, uh, have completely given themselves over to the dragon to the point where now they're, they're participating in going into the homes of Christians, ripping little kids and moms and dads out of their home in the middle of the night because of what they say they believe about Jesus and they're crucifying them or they're feeding them to lions. How do you comfort a church in the first century whose mom just got fed to a lion? How do you comfort a church where literally every week more and more seats are empty and they're not empty because the people are unhappy and they want to go to a different church down the road. They're empty because they're no longer alive. They were killed for their faith last night, but the people still got up the next morning and went to church to worship. How do you comfort a church like that? Well, God knows how to comfort a church like that, and you give them a vision of what the end of time will be like, our position, what we will be doing, and the judgment and justice that is coming on those who have perpetrated this kind of wrath against God's people. Those who persecute and murder will not be left unjudged. There is a judgment coming for those who reject the lamb, and there is a rest coming for those who suffer at the hands of this world. That's the power of this vision, and the power of this vision isn't just true for the first century. The power of this vision is true for today as well. Now, many of us aren't suffering in the same kind of ways, but the truth is that in the first century, Rome and society went full dragon. They were immersed in immorality and, and uh, sexual immorality and idolatry. Um, they were drunk on the sins of Babylon. They endorsed the murder of Christians. And we have not left that. We have actually increased it over time. And there are more people every day giving themselves to dragon worship, to idolatry, to sexual immorality, and they will increasingly get more and more drunk on the wine that Babylon is pouring out from its streets, and it will, it will cause the, the, the nations to become drunk on so much immorality that again, they will turn on the people of God and perpetrate murder in the same way they did in the first century. This will not be localized to Rome. This will be worldwide. That's where we're headed. And you can't stop it. It's just coming. Now, why do we need to know this? Because it makes the picture of God's people at rest even sweeter. It makes the understanding of what's coming next and God's pouring out wrath on the earth make sense. 
it seems cruel for God to just pour out his wrath on an earth that, well, maybe, that, maybe they didn't deserve it. Don't you know how they grew up? Don't you know that they're just, they're just perpetuating violence because they were themselves victims? We have this sense that, that we can rationalize corrupt, evil sin because we don't understand what a holy God must do to that kind of stuff in his presence. The option is clear to all of mankind. Come out from under that wrath and that sin and and drinking the wine of Babylon, join my son's team, or suffer the wrath that's coming for the dragon and all who follow him. Those are the two options. So, this vision declares to the first century a comfort, but it also declares a final outcome for all the suffering for all the centuries. God's people will rest and rebellion will be punished. Let's pick it up in verse uh, five. It says, after this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. So he's seeing Heaven's open and the temple in heaven is now seen and clear and everybody can see it. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with gold sashes around their chest. They're dressed like Jesus was in the beginning of the book because these are representatives of the Lamb and they are coming to accomplish his purposes to close history. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now this section is one of the reasons why I see the bowls of wrath poured out on the earth and his return to gather his church and judge sin as happening at the same event. So you've got 1 Corinthians 15, 52, where Paul says, Jesus is coming back at the last trumpet sound. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 31, when the last trumpet blows, I'm gonna send my angels to gather my church from the, the, gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. You've also got Paul saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the last trumpet sounds. Jesus is going to return. These three verses in the New Testament, outside of Revelation, communicate to us that there is going to be something that happens that marks his return and gathering of his people. And that is a trumpet, a trumpet blows. Now we just had seven trumpets blow. When the last trumpet blows, uh, back in Revelation 11:9, we're told that as that last trumpet is sounded over the earth, the heavens opened and the temple is seen. You remember that? That's important because now we're starting to put together and understand what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying and what John is seeing. 
We're hearing this trumpet and then we're seeing the skies open up and the temple is released. But not only that, last week in Revelation chapter 14, verses 15 through 18, we are told that this temple that is seen, angels start coming out of that temple. And what are those angels doing? They're harvesting the earth like a grape harvest. And now we're told in Revelation 15, 5, that the temple is open and we're about to read in 16 about these seven angels who are leaving the temple and coming out on the earth to pour out these bowls of wrath. This is what leads me to conclude that when that last trumpet, trumpet sounds, the sky is gonna open, the temple of God is gonna be seen, and a couple things are gonna happen simultaneously. Jesus is gonna return to gather his church, we're gonna meet him in the air, the dead are gonna rise, we're gonna be with him, and at the same time, these seven angels are gonna come out and pour seven bowls of wrath on the earth. Destruction is coming to planet Earth. Wrath will be poured out as Jesus returns. And where is he headed with his people? He's heading to the final battle. Because when the seventh bowl is poured out, the nations think that they can take on the lamb and his people. But we'll have to see how that works out for them. I'll give you a little spoiler, it isn't well. It does involve 100-pound hailstones falling from the earth. Okay, so before we dive into Revelation 16 and the details of the bowls, I want to consider the gravity of this moment. It doesn't matter how advanced humanity gets. It doesn't matter how many rocket ships or how many satellites or how many planets we discover or how advanced our technology gets. It does not matter how robust our technology is, how much we can communicate. It doesn't matter how deadly our weapons are or how strong our alliances with other nations are. You cannot avoid your destiny with a holy God. Now, when I say things like that, you're like, yep, that's true. But I want you to wrap your arms around that for a moment. Because what is happening in our world around us is the same thing that happened back in Genesis when mankind was trying to build the Tower of Babel. They were convinced that they could use their own two hands to create structures and systems that elevated mankind above God. That's what we're doing again. We're trying to beat this thing called death. We're trying to push it down the road as far as, far as we can. We try to do it with, with medicine, we try to do it with exercise, we try to do it with surgery, but we're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to avoid this thing that's coming for us. We create systems, we connect our kids, we're trying to avoid the pain that's coming their way. We do everything we can to combat, put up walls, strengthen our resolve, create alliances. Why, why are we doing that? Because we're convinced that there isn't someone who is over us and sovereign over us and, and dictates what happens in our lives. We pretend like we are not under authority. We imagine that we are the final authority. 
We make our own destiny. We destiny. We decide what's going to happen in our lives, and we can. Uh, and, and the things that that are uncertain, we can hedge our bets against that, so that we can limit those things. And then our chances of those things ever happening just they limit, limit, limit until the moment you get a call from the doctor that says we found something on your scan. You know what I'm talking about? There's this sense in the heart of humans that we can cheat what's coming for us. That we can keep ourselves from it. But when you read that there is a day coming when there are seven angels with seven bowls of God's wrath ready to pour out on the earth, you get this sense that it doesn't matter what you do, you can't stop what's coming. And it will be for those who reject the authority of the Lamb worse than the worst Category 5 hurricane you could possibly ever imagine. And it's not coming for a city. It's coming for the whole earth. The idea that there is a day coming And we're trying everything we can to avoid it, but you can't avoid it. It is coming. It forces you to make some decisions about your life that maybe be a, a little more important than what are we gonna have for dinner? Or where's my kid gonna go to school? Or how much, how can I save up for this? Or what can I prepare for this? Or, 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 or uh, how can I buy the best vehicle that will, some, there are some other decisions about eternity that should be made before you just start deciding what you're going to do for the next 24 hours of your life. And for those of you who have already made that decision, good. But for those of you in here who have said, it's not important, I don't know if I believe all of this. I've got bad news for you. There is a day coming when the Lord is going to judge the earth and it will be worse than you hunkered down in a hotel room while a Category 5 hurricane blasts over you, and it doesn't matter how reinforced the concrete of that building is, it will not stand. Nothing that mankind has made will stand in that day. And so you've got a problem on your hands. And the problem is, are you going to continue to put your trust in the things made with the hands of man, even you, or are you going to put your trust in something more eternal? The lamb who was slain so that you can have forgiveness of your sins. This is what we're confronted with as we read Revelation 15. There is a destiny coming and we can't avoid it. Now let's go to 16 verse 1. It says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out its bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its dragon. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. That Greek word for every living thing means every living thing. 
everything. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now earlier in the book, the altar was a symbol of those who were slain during this period of time. So what we see is as the angel is pouring out these judgments, we see the angel affirming God's justice and those who were killed at the hands of those who followed the dragon affirming God's sense of justice. Now what's interesting about these bowls is it's a database reference back from the Old Testament, back to Jeremiah 15, excuse me, Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17. Jeremiah sees these cups of God's wrath and his instructions are, I'm gonna pour these cups of wrath out over the nations. But John also sees in the vision this temple and one of the articles, or excuse me, one of the um, utensils in the temple uh, for the process of the priests doing their rituals uh, of sacrifice were these bowls. And so what John sees when he describes the vision is this mixture of these these cups of wrath that Jeremiah saw, but these bowls that are in the temple and they're massive. So now we don't just have like a cup that's gonna be poured out on the nations. Now we've got these massive bowls that have just been filled over the years with God's wrath against the nations who have perpetrated wrath against his people. And what we're told is that these bowls are gonna be poured out on the earth. We see the first three and the repercussions of these bowls being poured out looks like the plagues of Egypt. And we saw this in the seals, we saw this in the trumpets, but we're seeing it again in the bowls. And the reason why we keep seeing these things where John says, man, it's kind of like this, but it's also like this thing that I saw. I'm just gonna take this, this reference from what I know from Jeremiah, or this reference from what I know of Isaiah, and I'm gonna use it to describe what I see right now. The reason why this is, is because God is declaring that if you want to know what I'm going to do, all you have to do is look back at what I have always done. What's coming to the earth isn't unprecedented and it isn't new. It is what God has been doing for thousands of years locally to nations, but now the, the, the sin has spread so quickly and, and, and so thoroughly that it's not just a city that is guilty. Now it is all mankind that is guilty and what happened in Egypt is now going to happen over the entire earth. So when the bowls of wrath are poured out, the first angel, he pours out wrath and we see that sores break out on those who are marked with the beast. Angel two pours out his wrath and salt water turns into corpse blood. Not like 
human blood, but like alive blood, like corpse blood, like coagulated corpse blood. That's why everything dies. And then it's not just the salt water that's touched. We're told that angel three pours out wrath over all of the fresh water and all of the fresh water on planet earth turns to blood. Now this imagery of blood should in your mind pull you back to Revelation 14, 20. Last week when we were talking about the angels coming out of the temple and harvesting the earth, pulling the grapes and putting them in the great wine press of God's wrath, what happened when they were pressed? Blood flowed out. Now we've got angels leaving that same temple, pouring out these bowls of wrath, and what do we have? Blood everywhere. This is why I see these events as connected. Because what we're watching here is judgment coming on the earth, but what's interesting about the way that the, the judgment that God chooses is he chooses, he chooses judgment that fits the crime. The angel says, just are you, because you're, they are the ones who shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you're now giving them blood to drink. There is this sense that in God's justice, that supersedes your sense of justice, in his sense of justice, it is just to punish people with the sin they choose to commit. Now this is not unprecedented in the scripture. We're seeing followers of the dragon who wanted blood. God is saying, you want blood? I'm gonna give you blood. We also see this in Psalm 115.8 and Psalm 135.18 when the psalmist is describing those who worship idols. He says, those who worship them become like them. Those who make them become like them. What are they like? The idols can't hear, they can't speak, they can't walk, they can't move their hands. If you want to worship a God who can't hear and can't speak, then I will punish you by making you a person who can't hear and can't speak. Not physically, spiritually. There will be no wisdom that pours out of your mouth. You will be a fool. When wisdom comes your way, you won't be able to hear it because you want to worship an idol who can't hear, so I'm going to punish you by letting you become like the thing that you want so bad. Now that is, that is bad news for everybody because what it means is the thing that you want more than anything, he will make you like it. If you say, God, 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 no, no, please, 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 I, I just want this thing. And he, and he says, no, you can't have the thing. That's not good for you. I don't want that for you. Say, ah, I know you said that a hundred times, but please, 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 I'm gonna keep going back to it. I'm gonna keep going back to it. I want this thing. I want this thing. There will be a point at which he will stop telling you no, and he will say, I'm going to give you the thing that your heart wants so bad. Not because I'm a mean dad, but because I'm a loving dad. And I want you to experience what that thing really has to offer. You want the attention, the approval of mankind so much more than the approval and the affections of God Almighty. 
He will eventually give you over to that rat race of trying to make people happy and it never coming. You say, I spend my whole life, I, just, like, I can't find anything happy. Well, I know why you can't find rest and happiness. It's because you spent your whole life trying to make everyone else happy. You wanted the approval of the people around you more than the approval of your God, and that's why you don't know what his word says, and that's why you can't follow what his word says, because you are more interested in what your friends, what their words are and what they say about you than what your heavenly father says about you. If you keep chasing that thing that he says no to, you're eventually gonna get it and the full repercussions of what that thing means. Now let's go to verse eight. We've got more bowls. It says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Gotta do my John Hagee impression. Give him praise and glory. <laughs> Chad got that one, you like that. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. It did not repent of their deeds. You know, it's fascinating. They're blaming God for their own decisions. They're playing a victim and saying, you're the one who's doing this to us, not I'm doing this to myself. He offered me a way out from under his wrath. I don't have to experience this. Therefore, if I am, I'm experiencing it because of my own decisions. I'm here because I want to be here. Well, then you can't blame him and they find a way to. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the unholy trinity we talked about last week, the three, excuse me, they saw three unclean spirits like frogs. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Verse 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So we've got more bowls of wrath. Angel four pours out wrath and the sun is scorched People, with, uh, people are scorched with fire. Angel five pours out wrath and the unholy trinity is now cast into total darkness. Again, this is symbolism. So we're not literally saying the sun is gonna burn people, but we're not saying it's not because a lot of times symbolism points to something literal. That's the point of symbolism. 
So when we look at the kingdom of the beast going into total, total darkness, does that mean that he's going into total darkness and that the power won't work and he can't see which way is up? It might mean that because that's what happened in the Egyptian plagues, but it might be deeper than that. It might mean that his entire kingdom is cast into darkness and the authority and power at which he had, he no longer has for a time. And that's why he has to release demonic spirits to go and do his work for him. And what is his work? to gather the nations for a final battle, to convince those who are under his power that the best thing that you can do with your time is challenge God. Now this narrative is very similar to the Egyptian plague narrative. We got sores, we got blood, we got fire, we got darkness, we got frogs, and we even have hardness of heart. Because every time these cosmic events are poured out on the earth, mankind only rejects God. And the reason why is because this reality isn't true just once, it's true over and over and over and over again. When mankind is confronted with the reality of a holy God, they either melt or their hearts, their hearts get hardened. There's only two things that happen when the, when the sun shows up. It melts stuff or it hardens stuff. And this is what we're seeing with the nations who have given themselves over to the dragon. When the Lord starts demonstrating his true, raw power and his sense of justice, it only makes the nations more and more angry and more and more blind to the point where they are convinced that the best thing they could do is to take on the lamb. And we're told that they gather together in this place called Armageddon. But before we get to that sense of Armageddon, Jesus interrupts in verse 15. He says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Keep your garments on so you don't walk around naked and become exposed. Jesus interrupts what's coming for his people to get some resolve, to not give up. Because what he's saying here is that I'm coming like a thief, but I'm coming like a thief to those who are asleep. That's a common mis misconception. I hear a lot of Christians like, you know, he's, he's coming like a thief, so could be any moment. Well, the Bible's clear. He's only coming like a thief for those who are asleep. If you're awake, excuse me, if you're awake and if you're paying attention, he doesn't come like a thief. You know he's coming. You're ready for him. But for those who are sleeping, he comes like a thief to them. We're told in Matthew 24, Jesus says that my return is gonna be like in the days of Noah. People were giving in marriage, they were doing their normal things, and then all of a sudden, right up until the point where Moses, or Noah went into uh, the, the boat and the door was shut, right up until that moment, people were just living their lives and thinking that whatever they thought was the best thing to do, that's what they did. And then all of a sudden, the floods came. And those were washed away. And then we're told in this parable, we're saying, two, two, there's gonna be two people over here at a grinding mill, there's gonna be two people out here uh, uh, doing work, and then one is gonna be taken and the other left. And we, also, we, we often think that, well, okay, well, if one is taken, then, then they're taken up to be with Jesus. But that's not the context of the parable. He's talking about the days of Noah and being taken by the flood because you weren't prepared. And so if you've got two people out in a grinding mill and one's gone, the one that's gone isn't taken by the Lord. The one that's gone is taken by the flood because they weren't ready. 
And so he's warning you, these things are coming on the earth, but it's not the first time this stuff has come to the earth. There was a time when the, when the entire earth was flooded and, and the entire creation didn't care. And they were swept away. My people, don't be swept away. Keep your clothes on. Don't walk around naked. Don't fall asleep. Don't go to sleep naked. These are all good pieces of advice. Spiritual advice. You do not want to live your life with the attitude that, man, that's stuff I can worry about later. No, it isn't stuff you can worry about later. It's stuff you have to deal with now because you are not promised later. You don't know if you'll get later. So therefore, stay awake. And then Revelation 16 ends with this picture of pride and deception. The dragon sends out frogs, demonic spirits to convince the nations that they should rally together against the returning Jesus and his people. So they gather their forces and assemble for war at Armageddon. Now Armageddon's interesting. It's a Hebrew word here that means Mount of Megiddo. There's only one problem. There is no Mount Megiddo. Megiddo is a plain, is flat. There are no mountains there. So either John is talking about a literal place that doesn't exist yet, or he's talking symbolically, and he's mixing this idea of mountains, which historically were the places where the gods set up their false kingdoms. If you had a false god you were gonna worship, where would you set the temple up? On the top of a mountain. And Megiddo is this place that historically in Israel where a lot of Israel's battles were fought and God showed himself strong in defeating the enemy. So either it's a literal place that doesn't exist yet or it's a symbolic mixing of this idea where the place where mankind sets up their false gods is going to be utterly destroyed at the same place where God always shows himself faithful. Armageddon, the final battle where mankind thinks they will triumph, but they will be completely humiliated. Let's find out how the humiliation goes in verse 17. They gather for war in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple. Came out of the throne and it says, it is done. And at that moment, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there has never been since man on the earth. So great was that earthquake that the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And it's not just localized to these cities. Every island fled away. There are no more mountains to be found. That's how big this earthquake is. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. 
Well, Armageddon didn't go down like the nations thought they would. They assembled for war. They're boldly declaring, look at what we've got. Look at these weapons. Look at these tanks. We are ready to take you on. And all that needed to happen was an angel threw his bowl into the air. A voice declared, it is done. And these massive hundred pound hailstones start falling from the sky and crushing people. This is what I meant when we started when I said that there is a date on God's calendar for when he's going to end humanity and history. And it doesn't matter how much technology we develop, you can have an entire laser grid that's gonna shoot hailstones out of the sky, doesn't matter. We got thunder, lightning, we got a massive earthquake that flattens all mountains. There is no technology, there is no advancement in humanity that is gonna outrun the judgment of God. It is coming, and that means that the message of Revelation 15 and 16 is as old as the Garden of Eden. You can't outsmart God. You can't rework his words. You can't outrun his judgments. He is the creator and you are the creation. And what is required of us is not to elevate ourselves to or above his status. It is to submit ourselves in his service to accomplish the glorification of the Lamb to all of the nations. To declare his majesty that he took on human form, submitted himself to his own creation, and was murdered by his own people so that he could call the Gentiles, the lost tribes of Israel, to come out from rebellion and into the family of God to be adopted in through Christ. We are not equal with the Creator, and we cannot outrun His coming judgment. You either submit to the message of the Gospel, or what is coming in this book is coming for you. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.